0: This episode of Inside Transportation is sponsored by Ford Motor Company. Built on the belief that freedom of movement drives human progress, from connectivity to autonomy, AI to machine learning, Ford has one simple goal, to improve mobility for its customers. To learn more about Ford's work in mobility, autonomous vehicles, and their global efforts to improve mobility for its customers, visit corporate.ford.com. That's corporate. Hello and welcome to the Inside Transportation Podcast, a production of Inside.com. This is our weekly podcast where we discuss transportation trends that you need to know about to stay ahead of the curve. My name is Johan Marino. My co-host Jason Kalkanis is not in this week, but we do have a very special guest. We have Scott Case, the co-founder and CEO of Recurrent, a clean tech startup focused on EV batteries. Now, before starting Recurrent, Scott actually spent 10 years as the chief operating officer of Energy Savvy, which is an energy efficiency software company. He played a critical role in growing the company to about 75 employees and $10 million in annual revenue, and was later acquired. Uh, He has an MBA from MIT Sloan School of Management, and now he's here to tell us about Recurrent. Scott, pleasure having you today on the podcast. Hey, this is cool to be here. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, So why don't you tell us a little bit about Recurrent? Why did you start this company? What need did you see in the market? Any thoughts there?
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, so you mentioned I spent you know ten years doing Energy Savvy, which was basically a company to help people make their houses more energy efficient, and Mm -hmm. we got into that as a you know I I wanted myself and my co-founders wanted to you know help uh, sort of chip away at the climate problem, and we we saw the energy used in the built environment as as a really big you know a big sector that we could address with our software skills. Um, So ran that for ten years. And when we got acquired and I I, ex- I exited in uh, 2019, you know, I took a little bit of time off, did some home improvement work, and then was like, okay, A, I'm bored, and B, we haven't solved this, you know, climate problem, obviously, in the last 10 years. So I'm like, what's the next sector to go after? And... I kind of picked my head up. This is like, I was like the last person, I think, to notice EVs, seriously.
0: We can really? About, okay. We can talk about what
1: I drive later, <laughs> but uh, it is not an EV, like sort of hot, hot, hot secret. Um,
0: no what, what do you drive? What do you drive? Uh, well, I'm
1: in the middle of my story right now, so <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Dad. So, um, so um, but yeah, it was like, I st- sort of picked my head up for the first time in 10 years and I'm like, Oh my god there's batteries driving everywhere around the roads like that's different let me sort of like look into that as an entrepreneur and so i spent um i then hopped into i live in seattle and so i hopped into the um uh, university of washington as a clean energy institute and they brought me on as an entrepreneur in residence which basically gave me a chance to like walk the campus, like I could just like badge my way into the chemical engineering building and just hang out in people's labs and and just talk to all these like scientists and and um, I had about four different um, business ideas, mm-hmm. all of them having to do with EVs, charging infrastructure, uh, second life uh, use of decommissioned EV batteries that I was vetting at the same time. And part of it, my time at UW was able to give me a chance to. Talked to all these folks on the technical side, like, how would each of these different, um, you know, like companies, if in theory, companies work? But then at the same time, was also the thing about it from a market perspective, like, what are the, what's the market size? And what are the, what are, what are the market problems that we could be solving here? And do they need to be solved? And so that was like, at the same time, and the cool thing about vetting four different ideas is you're not just sitting there looking at one going like, is this a good idea? Yes or no, with no alternative, you're looking at four, and you're saying like, okay, which is the best, you know, all of them may still stink, but, you know, but at least like it's, you're able to to kind of like look for the strongest market signals and the strongest technical signal, signals that like one of them is the right one. And right, Recurrent absolutely. just popped to the top of that stack.
0: Yeah. So, so go ahead and tell us what Recurrent is exactly. If you had to describe this startup for someone who may not be super familiar with what you're doing, Um, what's, what's the goal and the mission for recurrent?
1: Yeah. So, uh, we just, you know, sat down and and looked at the used EV market. It's small, but it's growing really fast and in a predictable way. Right. So like used car market, by the way, overall twice the size of the new car market, um, which for a pretty obvious reason, like a car can only be sold definitionally new once. Versus, they can be sold. Or they are sold like for the first time. On average, four years later, uh, used for the first time, and then get sold one or two more times after that. So. Um, so, you know, new EV sales have been going up into the right, obviously 2018, there was this huge inflection point step function really driven by the release of the, of the model three and that the numbers for the model three in that year were such a huge step function compared to the numbers of sales that have been going up there. So look at where we are three, four years later. All of a sudden, the Model Threes are showing up in massive numbers on the used market, right for the first time, and so we knew that was coming just because it's predictable. So, so we started looking at that market, going like, "Gosh, like these cars are physically different than what the, than uh, ICE cars or combustion internal combustion engine uh, vehicles." Um, and so, the people, the begin, the early adopters of the used market are asking different questions, as they should be, you know, mm-hmm. for the for, for these vehicles, and. Yet the industry, generally speaking, is basically trying to move them like they did with all used ice sales, you know. And so there was just this disconnect between the questions people are asking and the and the way that the, that these vehicles, the used vehicles, were being positioned and marketed. Uh, and the you know the obvious huge you know difference is like there's a giant battery in this thing you know right. and, uh, and in fact that that's pretty much in a lot of ways like a used EV is is or a, a, an electric vehicle is just a giant like lithium ion battery with some wheels on the side and some trim on the top and so it makes sense for people to be asking questions about the huge you know elephant in the room or like I guess like elephant inside the car I don't really know what the way of, ex- of expressing that is and um and the answers are we're not there and so like that was the biggest thing like people are sitting there going how's the battery in that thing and when they ask that they actually mean they don't exactly mean how the battery is but they mean like how's the range now how does that vary in different weather conditions and temperatures Ah. how does how will that change you know three years from now like it, it it becomes a very personal thing like like i live in dallas and you know, every month I go to Oklahoma City to visit my in-laws, and I want to know: can I get there in one charge now, and uh, will I still be able to get there in one charge three years from now in the winter?
0: That is a very interesting point because we often see these range claims from you know auto manufacturers, but obviously as time goes on and that battery gets worn, that range isn't going to be the same. You know, ten years down the road. So, so how is recurrent? exactly able to get that data and that information about the lifespan of a battery, you know, five years, 10 years down the road.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, I'll say... The, you know the only published number that is out there, you know, for a new EV is the EPA range, and that's right. wrong on day one. You know, like oh yeah, but, yeah. You know, so 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 it is not. It, you know, automakers and you know, it's it. There's a standard that's important, right? But the reality of it is that is that range varies. You know, in in the real world, it varies based on your driving. You know, uh, behaviors, right? And, oh, and the temperatures and everything like that. Your use of HVAC controls. Um, Uh, So, but, so it's wrong right on day one. And then it, for sure it's wrong over time as there's like, there are seasonal changes. um, But then there's also long-term battery degradation, which is just normal, right? For any lithium ion battery, it just, it, it, you can't, I mean, you've had an iPhone long enough that, you know, like over time, uh, it, it doesn't last the whole day anymore. Right? So uh, so anyway, that's that that's the, the problem we're trying to solve and do it from a technical, uh, technically feasible method and also make it understandable for normal people uh, that are entering the used EV market. And that's the big thing here is I think like to date, everyone who has bought an EV and a used EV in particular has basically been an early adopter, bleeding edge early adopter. You know, they're used mm-hmm. to f- jumping all kinds of weird hurdles, uh, you know, because they're early adopter of technology. The people who have just entered the EV market uh, from buying in new and used are now early majority buyers and they will not put up with the same crap that frankly was out there that early adopters will. And so so for us that's like a really important uh, uh, consideration as we think about what our product needs to look like and who it needs to serve. Okay so now, <laughs> your question, it was like, yeah, if, if... how do we do this? Right? Yeah. So we're essentially using um, data, uh, you know, from the early adopters who already have EVs uh, um, to inform the basically the next wave of, of, of what happens. And so specifically what I mean here is like we have a free product that anybody who is a current EV driver can sign up for and um, they uh, agree to give us data. Um, five pieces of pretty anonymous data. So it's uh, a couple times a day. It's um, uh, the vehicle's current state of charge, its range estimate at that moment, its odometer reading, whether it's plugged in or not, and whether it's charging or not. So we get those five pieces of data on, we now have just about 3,000 vehicles, mix of makes, models, and uh, years all over the country. So we're seeing these in different weather conditions over the long term. And that's all, like, you you don't have to, like, go in and fill out a thing every, you know, a couple times a day. It's, you're essentially authorizing authorizing us to pick up telematics from your vehicle through your Tesla, uh, the Tesla API, or through, like, OnStar or Carnet or whatever the connected services account for your vehicle is.
2: Uh, You're authorizing us
1: to just to pick up those five pieces. That's it. Um, And um, so people are, you know, generally, like, reasonably comfortable with that. Not everybody is, but we don't need everybody to be comfortable with
0: that do you um, offer them an incentive for providing that data
1: yeah so what we do is we're providing everybody who's doing this we're providing them with these monthly kind of battery health reports that give them a way to mm. monitor their own battery because it turns out it's not only shoppers that like don't know what's going on with their battery uh it's also owners as well like they you know people right. used to have an oil change for their car once a year or whatever and so there's this moment where a mechanic would go in and take a look at it and be like well you need new tires because you know, your tread's worn or you got to, you know, change out the gigaflop or whatever, you know, but there's, at this point, EVs don't really get very much service, you know, compared to ICE cars. And so there's no moment of feedback that says, hey, this is what's going on. This is okay. Or you should watch this or whatever. And so people kind of like, I think our, our, um, our drivers that are, that are getting reports from us and sharing data kind of like, feel like it's like, hey, this is a way of checking in and making sure that everything is okay on my car. Um, And we don't charge for it because, um, you know, we're getting data, you know, and we're very upfront about this, by the way, when when you sign up, it's like, hey, our our purpose, you're sharing data with us. We're going to give you this cool monthly report that helps you understand, like, your range and how that's varying and how it's changing over time, what's seasonal and what's long term, and even also market value for your car. Like, if you're getting ready to to trade it in, like, here's, here's what the prices are, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, you make a good point because now with electric vehicles, since they do have a lower number of components overall versus a traditional ICE vehicle, um, you know, you don't need to service it as much. Most things can be done over the air, so you may never even see someone related to, to your car's vehicle service. Now, you were mentioning, um, you know, resale values and, and you know, people who might be interested in selling their cars, and that's why they want these monthly battery reports uh, you know, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with Carfax and some of these other traditional vehicle report providers. What's stopping them from, you know, getting into this space? Like, what what gives Recurrent an edge as far as providing this data uh, through these reports? Right. Well, well,
1: let me just let me let me finish out. I'll make a transition to this. Is like we're basically so it's, we have all these thousands of drivers who are providing data, getting monthly reports, and then. All that data is going into a series of machine learning models that, um, that are basically like we're feeding it so much data, you know, in, including the how the cars are being used, what their all those, those individual data points are, and then also physical characteristics of the battery, like what the chemical composition is, what the pack layout is, what manufacturer made the battery, you know, because mm-hmm. so there are similarities that we can sort of pull apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, not from a human perspective, but with a machine learning model that can sort of find sort of unexpected similarities that allow us then to do what I'm about to talk about, which is the, you know, which is the vehicle kind of like condition port for any used car that's for sale on a lot, you know, somewhere near you. Right. Yeah. And so for those vehicles, we know a lot less about their, about them because we don't, the, you know, we, we can't like log into them, in, you know, and it's, it's we don't get data over time on them. In some cases, actually, I'll say like our vehicles that are in our, you know, our drivers like do sell their cars, and then there actually is a bunch more information that they're welcome to use. And some of, you know, some of them have actually done that. They've told us like, "Hey, I printed out my my report. And I showed it to the buyer uh, to, as a way of sort of engendering confidence in the hey, this is like I took care of this kind of thing." But we haven't that hasn't really gotten the scale yet, um, but. What we're doing is we're taking all the data that we know from you know makes, models, and years, and you know we have like over a thousand uh, Model Threes, for instance, in our in, mm. our in our data fleet, right? So we're seeing these vehicles all the time, and then now we can go and when a when a used Model Three shows up at a at a used car lot somewhere, um, we're taking a few data points about that vehicle, the odometer reading, the where it where it grew up, basically what weather conditions it was exposed to um some data you know an increasing number of data points but relatively low friction actually from a data collection perspective but then we're comparing it to thousands of other vehicles that have similarities that that our machine learning model will point out and then that gives us the ability to with a pretty low degree of difficulty or a, a low degree of friction for a dealer or for a shopper we able to to actually to do a really good job of saying, hey, here's how this battery is doing. Here's what range you can expect in different weather conditions where you live. Even if that car didn't happen to isn't physically located where you are, frankly, it's in a different climate right now and grew up in a different climate. Here's what's probably going to happen with it.
0: Ah, I see. That's that's fascinating. Um, now, obviously, I'm sure you've noticed that the residual values on electric vehicles are significantly lower than, you know, ICE vehicles. Yeah. Um, and that might be changing a little bit with Tesla. I know Tesla residual values aren't as diluted. But if you look at the, you know, residual values of like a Nissan Leaf, right? Um, after like three years of ownership, people sell those cars for about like 50 to you know 40 40 to 50% of what they had paid right um, do you think a product like this is is going to revolutionize the the field for you know used vehicles in terms of pricing right because you're going to have more precise data on what this vehicle is exactly going to give you people are more informed on on what the car is actually going to net you um, in terms of usage, do, do you th- do you think that's also one of the side effects, or, or something that's going to happen as a result of more people using the recurrent uh, tool?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that that I think you're right that it is correcting, and we actually published a a, um, a study um, last this past month that has looked at used EV prices over the past few months. Now, granted, there's a lot of weird factors going into overall used used car pricing right now, but I think on the used EV side. There is a bit of a market correction on top of uh, on top of the um, sort of like overall used car sector, which is there's like chip shortages for new cars that are impacting right, used cars. yeah, right. But I think that people are now realizing there. On top of all that, there is a sort of shift to saying to to having more comfort with used EVs. Um, But the the big factor, and I do think that what our main product, which is basically like this, like condition report for a used EV that's for sale, uh, directly speaks to the concern that people have when they're going to buy a used EV that I would say like, you know, over the past like 18 to 24 months, most people are now comfortable buying a new EV. Like it's flipped in very, very quickly over the last 24 months, like from oh, a yeah. consideration number of like, yeah, you know, 20% or whatever to something like 70% of people in the US are say my next car, like I'm going to strongly consider, uh, you know, an EV, but that, that the numbers on used EVs consideration are not as high. And, I, and the only difference really is the sort of uncertainty on the, how the batteries are holding up. Um, and so, our report—we we do believe that our report, you know, will will serve to sort of, um, you know, help uh, reduce that uncertainty and and bring more people into the used market. Now, we're not we're not um, we're not wide enoughly distributed yet for us to be uh, having a having a uh, an impact on the overall market pricing because we you know we started in June, and we're just getting you know, we a few dozen dealers right. car dealers using it, uh, you know, so. It's, uh, it's, it's a relatively young product, but it, but I think that that it, it will have an impact as we go forward. Um,
0: so. Yeah, so you, you started this during the middle of the pandemic. I mean, what was that process like, and, and why did you decide to do this during such an uncertain time?
1: Uh, I mean, it's not like I decided to do it during the pandemic. It's like the pandemic showed up, and we were already <laughs> you know, doing it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, um, yeah, as I was wrapping up that entrepreneur-in-residence time at UW, um, I also jumped in with um, with Pioneer Square Labs, which is a really cool uh, tech incubator here in Seattle. Um, and I'd worked with a bunch of people before. And and so I started in with them, uh, sort of like working vetting. I had the idea for this and it had sort of, there are 18, you know, I'd spent enough time in the, in the uh, chemical engineering building at UW, like talking through the 18 different ways that you could characterize. Um, uh, Lithium ion batteries and sort of their health and everything like that, and had whittled down to which ones were practical for this market. Um, And but then the next thing was really to go into the market potential there and how you would create a company and bring it to a venture scale business. Um, And um, so that's where I kind of walked over, went over to Pioneer Square Labs for that bit. And um, that was really interesting because the the timing of it, I literally had one meeting during the first meeting that I, that I had there with some of the PSL staff, like the email went out to everybody that was like, the office is shutting. This was March of 2020. You know, they were, yeah. like, we're shutting down today. This is your, like, you know, get your stuff. You know? So it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was like, literally it was like that just happened. Right. And so, um, so we started the, uh, so we were, we spent, that was from March through June. We basically spent vetting the, um, you know, demand and, and sort of like looking at, at what the market potential was there and and how you how you would acquire customers and, you know, all the all the non tech stuff. Um, and, it and it, you know, we all came to the conclusion that this looked like a great business. No, we were doing all this over Zoom. So in June, we decided to incorporate and uh, Pioneer Square Labs as they do put in the first couple hundred thousand dollars of seed money um, and um, and I found my technical co-founder um, at that point, and we started, you know, we started going, and it, it wasn't, I mean, it, what's interesting about starting a company in the middle of the pandemic, when everybody in tech was work from home, was, um, you know, we didn't end up, ha- like, we never had an office, you know, we never had a culture, an office culture, we didn't have a lease. And so, like, I had a business plan, actually, from when, from March, where I had like this rent line item. And I was like, mm. "Oh, I'm just going to cross that off. Like, I never have to pay yeah. that, you know."
0: And, and so how many it, how many employees do you guys have right now? We're
1: we we have 12 people now. Oh wow. um, So, but and so it's work from home. Most of the people are clustered in Seattle, but uh, but I have we have people in in Texas, Iowa, New York. I mean, everywhere. And so and the plan is to to not just like stay remote for the time being, but to be work from home forever. Um, and then, but just. And then we're going to add in. We're actually doing our first one in June. We're going to add in uh, four work together w- weeks during the year. So once every three months, we'll all come together in a place. And you know, we're going to start in Seattle, but maybe it'll be somewhere <laughs> somewhere like cooler than that. You know. Um, yeah. After that, you know, where we just like you get to, you do get to just have a normal work uh, work week and then somewhere cool. Um, and you know, get to like hang out with each other. Um, I, you know like three-quarters of the people that are working here, I have not actually met in person ever. Oh, so wow. it's like yeah. crazy,
0: right? It is crazy. That is one thing that I have heard from companies that have yeah. kind of flourished during the pandemic. I know obviously you had the idea for it before, yeah. um, but you know some people actually started companies during the pandemic and they're like, I've never even met my coworkers. I haven't met most of the people who work for me. Um, one thing I was going to ask you is how do you find... Electric vehicle owners that are willing to to hand over this data. How are you doing a lot of the marketing right now for Recurrent?
1: Yeah, so this is where like I think that we're we're engaging with the early adopters and early adopter EV you know buyers or owners really are, they're just data nerds. I mean, they love, they're tracking their own, they're like, they've got sp- spreadsheets in Excel and stuff like that, but they're tracking their own numbers and have been for years. And so it, it's like pushing on an open door to get that those that group of people. You know, if you establish like, hey, we're, we're not gonna like steal your data or whatever, but we are, excuse me, we are, um, we're open ab- about, you know, with them about our whole business model. We're saying, hey, we're gonna use this data in an aggregate anonymized way in order to facilitate the secondary market for EVs. So, you know, you get this monthly report, but mostly the benefit for you is you get, you know, a bunch of other people driving EVs, you know, and they're all super psyched about that. You know, this is like, I drive around sometimes with my friend who has a, who has a Model 3 and it's the worst to go on road trips with him because he won't shut up about the Model 3 while he's, (laughs) while you're driving, while he's driving you around the Model 3. It's the worst road trip ever, (laughs) Uh, but, But that energy and that passion, I mean, I think you find that associated with a lot of different subcultures, but it's really powerful in the EV world. And so, you know, in terms of where we find these folks, like there's a lot of different uh, online message uh, forums where, you know, people, the the Teslarati hang out on these places and the Leafies hang out over here and the, uh, you know, whatever Bolties are over here. And so so I, I think it's a matter of just sort of like finding the really, really enthusiastic people uh, to start, you know, building trust, um, you know, being transparent about what we're doing and how we're doing it, interacting with them, you know, regularly so they, they sort of eventually understand that we're actually a good actor in this place and working for something they believe in. And then, you know, and then like once we get got up and going, then they, they sort of realize, oh, this is actually legit. They'll sit, they'll refer their friends, and and uh, and they you know tend to have driving clubs and stuff like that um, that they're in. Um, so that that's that has ended up how we've how we've done. It. It's uh, we have had very very little paid marketing uh, to to acquire customers. It's just been mostly word of mouth. Do
0: you, do you find it important to engage with your your customers and your the, the drivers that are basically sourcing the data for you? Or would you ideally have an arrangement with certain auto manufacturers, like let's say, you know, a, a Chevy, uh, and then basically just telling you, Hey, we'll just automatically connect, you know, our fleet of bolts and give you all that data without even engaging with the customer. Um, what, what do you prefer? I mean, cause obviously one route would be a lot easier for you guys to, to get a ton of, of data at once. Do you find that connection with EV owners important?
1: Well, it's, it, I you know when I started the company, you know, no one has ever heard of us, right? So let right. alone the automaker. So you know it's crazy. I don't know. You know Elon Musk hasn't called me yet to offer it up all, all offer up all his Tesla data, right? Like obviously I wasn't going to wait around for that to happen. Um, <laughs> so I took the you know as any startup entrepreneur does, like you, you know, you move fast and you figure out like, you don't let perfect be the enemy of good. And so this was a mechanism that we knew we could get started on to get, to get going. Right. Um, Over time, we are going to be adding different data sources and different. So there's a broader set of, um, of, of cars coverage. Uh, We don't have universal coverage yet, just because we haven't, sort of, we don't have, Uh, compatibility with, in fact, some vehicles don't have any telematics in them that can send back any information, even to the automaker, uh, some of the older ones, but, um, and then more data points per vehicle. So we're getting just closer and closer to the true, you know, data that we would really want to have, which, frankly, isn't actually gettable, because, I mean, the auto manufacturers themselves, don't have perfect visibility into the state of health of their batteries because it's like mm. it's really complicated and hard to do that monitoring at the cell level, um, which you actually need to understand what's going on. Um, I see, I see. Even the automakers have sort of a pro- have some proxy data, and in order to get like, and frankly, in order to get the perfect answer, you have to like like take apart the car, take apart the battery, and then do like you know individual cell level testing. You know, and it's not even like a cell has a number, like within a cell, like a pouch cell, you can have different uh, lithium plating at the top of the cell versus the bottom of the cell, you know, so it's, it's, it's really complicated. Um, It's, I mean, like automakers, you'd be like the, the equivalent, which you would not be able to believe, but, you know, is let's say gas cars had a gas gauge that didn't exactly understand how much gas was in the tank. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it ballparked it to within 20% or whatever, but that's basically what, uh, what the EV makers have today is like, they don't exactly know what the state of charge is or how many electrons are sort of in the, you know, lithium matrix, but it's like, you know, ballpark, right? There's no way that they, that they have the exact right answer, you know, on the state of health of each cell and the pack overall.
0: I see. I see. Well, we'll start wrapping up here. I mean, one final question for you. What do you think the government and auto manufacturers can do to increase sales of used electric vehicles? Because I'm sure as you are aware of um, right now, the government doesn't offer used buyers an incentive uh, to purchase a used electric vehicle. Uh, they do offer it for new vehicles, right? Um, but you know the automakers have also not really promoted, you know, the purchase of uh, used cars. And I, I haven't really seen Tesla push it too much. Um, Tesla's any like I on... a lot of, Tesla?
1: I just want to say Tesla is selling a lot of used Teslas. They're not oh, the okay. only player, but they, but they are. You know, that's that's a big part of their business too.
0: Yeah, yeah. But right. anyway, any ideas I... there on uh, on how they can kind of increase the number of used vehicles sold?
1: Yeah. Well, so I would love to see, you know, if I had my wave, my magic wand as a lobbyist, to be clear, we don't have a lobbyist. We are way too small for that sort of thing. You know, I would love to see the the federal incentives, um, you know, tax credits or actual. Yeah. I mean, do you remember in 2008, 2009, there was the cash for clunkers program. Yeah, yeah. So I would love to see cash for clunkers version two that applies to used EVs uh, and new EVs. Like, I think that would be an incredible policy, like if you can kind of craft it right. Um, now, but, but, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge that the federal government is not the only actor here. So I'm here in Washington state, Washington state. Um, we have a pretty high, uh, sales tax rates to uh, 10% or just over 10%. Um, the state has a policy that for any EV used or new, there's no sales tax. If the purchase price is less than $45,000. So that, that's actually a reasonable incentive that applies equally to uh, used and new. In fact, it's probably a bigger deal for used because um, because almost all used EVs are under 45K, you know? Um, so it's I, I think it's, it's, it, it, it does differ and it's not just a matter of like, there is no government support for used EVs. Um, so I, that's what I would say. You know, I think that all the investments are going into charging infrastructure. Awesome, obviously, and necessary. Um, But yeah, I would love to see Cash for Clunkers V2.
0: Great, great. Well, where can people learn more about Recurrent if they want to sign up for that battery report? Uh, what, what? Where can they access?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, uh, uh, RecurrentAuto.com, um, and uh, there's a section for drivers, and there's just a like a, a, a connection button there. Um, that's that's the main place to go. We are sort of beginning to roll out uh, features for usedb shoppers as well, which is like the the kind of the next portion of our business. Um, but a really cool, like just to put in a, a, there, there is some like news associated with this podcast is um, we just this week actually were awarded a, a grant, a research grant from the National Science Foundation for wow. our work in uh, on used battery, uh, sort of EV battery degradation. And so that's actually going to allow us to go bigger on. Uh, on the um, on the driver side, things to date, we've had this like wait list up <laughs> because you know it costs us to do this, and, and, mm. and all those monthly reports are like are free to the to the people, and so we've been um uh, so we've been sort of like letting people in uh, kind of a, a few at a time, basically to control our costs. But this NSF grant actually allows us to go bigger on that, and so in the next week or so, we're going to open it up to anybody who wants to join. Um, so. Pretty cool to, to, to have that backing and real just the credibility, of like there's real science that we're doing here. We yeah. Have, you know, some, you know, a couple of PhD uh, chemical engineers and a team of academic advisors that are professors from, you know, Columbia, Stanford, uh, UW, across the country. Um, so it's, I think that NSF recognized that, that there is a, this is a necessary um, thing to invest in uh, with the, you know, in, in, in as you, as you sort of pump up the entire ecosystem, the use part of it is a big thing, and nobody's really thinking about that yet. Um, And we're doing it with real science.
0: Wow. Well, incredible work. Scott, really, I mean, this is a genius idea because used electric vehicles are absolutely going to be critical to getting people out of their gas guzzling cars. I mean, we've all seen gas prices go up over the past month. Um, so absolutely going to be critical to getting more people into electric vehicles. Um, so if you are interested in, in, you know, learning more about recurrent, it's recurrentauto.com. Scott, thanks again for joining me. This was awesome.
1: Yeah, it's actually super fun. So, um, yeah, maybe we can uh, do it again in six or 12 months and, uh, we'll, we'll talk about where we've
0: come. Yeah, Maybe Elon will have sent you an email by then, uh, offering (laughs) you up all Tesla driver data, but which I'm sure if some he does that. Like if, 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 he does that, that. We'll, if
1: he does that, uh, you can book me and we'll talk about it. I'll, I'll, read, I'll read the tweet.
0: <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, well, thanks Scott. And we'll be back on the
3: inside transportation podcast right after this. Hey everybody. Just want to let you know that this episode of inside transportation is sponsored by our friends at the Ford motor company, built on the belief that freedom of movement drives human progress from connectivity to autonomy Ford has one simple goal and that's to improve the mobility of its customers. Ford has been using technology to shape the future of transportation for over 100 years and is dedicated to solving the world's most pressing mobility issues. What you might not know is that Ford has a series of divisions that make these visions a reality. Ford X is Ford's venture incubator that unites entrepreneurs, designers, and engineers to shape the future of transportation. Ford's City Innovations team brings innovative ideas to life through community workshops, crowdsourcing initiatives, and citywide mobility challenges. And SPIN, a property of Ford, brings e-scooter sharing to cities and college campuses. So here's your call to action. To learn more about Ford's work in mobility, autonomous vehicles, and their global efforts to improve mobility for its customers, visit corporate.ford.com. That's corporate.ford.com.
0: Hello, welcome back to the Inside Transportation Podcast. Johan Marino here. As we get ready to as we get ready to fly on a normal basis, uh, Roy Gonzarski hopes to turn the old flying model on its head. I'm sure you guys are all familiar with how we fly today, having to go to a large airport, boarding a large plane, and often paying a large price tag for even a short flight. And obviously, a lot of CO2, a lot of emissions come from airplanes we see today. We never really think about that, but it actually has an impact on climate change. Uh, So Roy is here. He's the CEO of MagniX. It's a startup working on electric propulsion systems for airplanes. Thanks for joining us today, Roy.
2: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Awesome. Awesome. So first of all, can you explain to our audience why December 10th, 2019 is always going to be a very significant date for you?
2: Uh, That was the date that the first commercially focused aircraft flew all electric, uh, purely powered by an electric propulsion system that got its electricity from batteries. No fuel involved, no emissions whatsoever, and very little noise. That was really the first shot, if you will, in the revolution uh, of uh, aviation going electric.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit more. Well, first of all, l- let me ask you a little bit more about yourself, because I, s- I see you have a very impressive background in aviation. You previously worked for Boeing. You're an expert in the aviation space. So what inspired you to join a startup like MagniX, kind of working on this moonshot project? What do you find inspiring about this work?
2: Yeah, so, so first of all, I, w- I wouldn't call myself uh, an expert in aviation. Uh, Yes, I've spent quite a few years of my life uh, in aerospace, but I'm far from being an expert. Uh, But I am a believer that the way we do aviation right now is not sustainable. And when I say not sustainable, not only from the fact that we create tremendous emissions and tremendous noise, which is also, by the way, a pollution that not many people think about as pollution. Right. But it's it's not sustainable because the model of having to drive an hour to an airport, arrive there an hour ahead of time just to get on a 40, 50 minute flight, an hour and a half flight, to get to another big airport with thousands of other people and drive another hour to your destination, and then pay hundreds of dollars for the pleasure, quote unquote, to do that. I don't think that's a sustainable model when the rest of the world has gone to an on-demand, press a button on an app and get something uh, uh, that's convenient. And so we really have to change it. And when Uh, I was introduced to MagniX and saw that they actually had the technology that could be the baseline or the ground uh, uh, base for doing this type of revolution. I couldn't say no to that.
0: Right. Got it. Why do you think it took so long for the industry to really accelerate the development of this technology? Right, Because, I mean, electric vehicles we've seen since the 90s, obviously, They've been getting better over time. We've seen VTOLs get onto the market and, you know, they've been, you know, seeing their moment as well. Um, You know, obviously, they're not in operation right now. um, But why do you think it took so long for there to be a recognition that you could actually retrofit or create airplanes that are using, you know, electric power? Any any thoughts there?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's two parts to that uh, question. Uh, the first is, why did it take so long to get to electric aviation in general? Uh, and the answer is uh, twofold. One, uh, one thing that happened to allow it to accelerate is technology. Uh, the low cost and high end capability of computers and simulation uh, allowed us to really check what the possibilities are in terms of various, and I'm talking hundreds of potential architecture of electric motors, different electromagnetic capabilities and architectures on how it could run what it might look like that low-cost high-end computer power really allowed that to happen because if you think of it the other alternative is spend a lot of money building actual motors to find out they don't work and right. so sim- simulation low-cost a uh, very uh, easy access simulation is one thing to happen mm, the, s- the, se- the second is is that it suddenly became not something that was out of reach had we 10 years ago said let's do an electric airplane, people would look at it as not possible at all. One, because it was just not done. There was no electric transportation at all. So why start with the most risky one, which is an airplane? Yeah. It you know, defies gravity every day. And the second was batteries were not even close to what they were now. The interesting thing that's happened now is, is that you have electric cars, although you say they started in the 90s, they really only started to be, quote-unquote, normal thanks to Tesla. Right, and so yeah. when Tesla started to really bring in electric cars, suddenly electric batteries or batteries to provide that electric power suddenly started more investment. And that's when, between that and the simulation, electric aviation became a potential reality. I won't say a reality yet, but a potential reality. On, in terms of regular aircraft versus what you mentioned, VTOLs, etc., actually fixed-wing aircraft came first, but they are not as sexy as the idea of a Jetsons vehicle landing in our backyard, picking us up and whisking us over traffic to our office building roof. And while that dream is an amazing dream, and I'll be first in line to do it, I think that's about 15 years away because of the complexities that come with it. But you don't see a lot of the regular-looking airplanes in the news because they're boring. Uh, I like to say that Mm. we're in the most boring part of aviation. It's an airplane that looks like an airplane. It takes off from an airport and it lands in an airport. Right. The only difference uh, in big quotation marks is that it's completely electric. It's completely clean. It's significantly lower cost to operate. uh, And we know how to operate them. But they're not as sexy as this VTOL or air taxi idea. And that's why you see a lot of that in the news.
0: Yeah, that's one thing I was going to ask you. Is there any specific advantages of flying with, let's say, an electric airplane from what you've researched, from what you've been developing as your business plan versus some of this future technology like VTOLs?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a few differences. One, I think that in the future, we're going to see both. There's room for both of them. Mm -hmm. If you look at the transportation kind of segment in general, you can break it into almost three distinct parts. One is anything below 50 miles in range, right? Mm -hmm. It's inner city, suburb to city, et cetera. You're talking about uh, uh, highly dense transportation, and there are a lot of alternatives. We may not like them all, but there's a lot of alternatives, be it walking, bicycle, motorcycle, uh, taxi, car, bus, tram, subway. There's a lot of alternatives. Again, maybe they're polluting, maybe they're congested, maybe you don't like them. But the alternatives are there for the 50 miles and below. And that's really where the tolls are going to be. So they're trying to solve a problem of congestion, but not to solve a problem of capability.
0: Mm, then there's
2: anything over a thousand miles, which really you don't have alternatives that are good except for flying. So if I want to do Seattle where I live to go visit my daughter, who's now in Philadelphia, uh, mm-hmm. I really can either fly or I can drive for a couple of days or maybe take a train that's almost unrealistic in the United States. And right. so I really don't have an option but to fly, let alone if I want to go outside of the United States to Europe or to Asia. And overall, it's not a bad experience. I drive an hour to the airport. I get there an hour ahead of time. I get on a five-and-a-half-hour flight to Philadelphia, get to the airport, and drive another half hour into the city. And I pay about 300 or 400 bucks return. That's not a bad deal overall. The problem becomes when you're in between, between 50 to 1,000 miles in range, it's really a no man's land. There's not Mm. good public transport. The trains in this country and a lot of places in the world are terrible. They're not on time. They're not convenient. They're not where you want them to be. Then in aviation, or driving, of course, is not realistic because you have to drive five, seven, 12 hours, maybe multiple days, not very convenient either. Yeah. But then on the other hand, in aviation, you're still limited to what the airlines want to supply to you. Where do they want to fly from? What airport? Where do they want to fly to? What airport? When do they want to fly? And they charge you whatever they want. And so if I want to fly 250 miles, for example, from here to Eastern Washington, which Mm -hmm. is a 250-mile trip. I still have to go an hour to the airport. I still have to be there an hour ahead of time, only to get on a 45-minute trip, uh, a flight. And that costs me, guess what? $480 return. Yeah. And so the same as it would cost me to go to Philadelphia. So instead, what do most people do? They drive five hours there, yeah. and then they drive five hours back. If you look at the United States alone, out of all of the trips that are 500 miles or less, 500 miles, which is about, a five to nine hour drive right. of all trips that are 500 miles or less only 1.6 percent are done by air mm. imagine that yeah so a lot of people want to travel those distances but the hassle and the cost combined of air travel today for those distances is not worth it electric aviation for that what we call middle mile is exactly the sweet spot that will make a difference it's close enough to where electric planes can do it. And it's far enough to where it makes a real difference. And that's really where it's going to play a part.
0: Yeah, because you're also getting all of those cars, right, that would have been taking that 500 to 900 mile drive off the road. And I think that's something a lot of people don't think about when they think about trains or public transit, is that, you know, where you're really see it's not just that the vehicle itself is is zero emissions, and it's powered by electricity, but it's also you're getting, you know, nine, 10 cars off the road that would have been driving, you know, 900 miles. And when you're thinking about the grand scheme of, you know, a transportation system, that's actually a really you know, significant amount of, of carbon emissions that are being emitted. I mean, you,
2: you, don't, you don't even have to think about the
0: 900-mile trips. Just think about 100-mile
2: yeah. trips. 100-mile trips, which is a two- to three-hour drive, depending on where that 100 miles are. And are you crossing, for example, islands? Are you getting on a ferry? Are you going in, in, in non-highway travel? But even a 100 to 200-mile trips, if only 1.6% of those trips are done by air, that means almost the re- all the rest are done by car. You're absolutely right. Get one nine-passenger plane, that's nine cars off the road. Get a 12-passenger plane, that's 12 cars off the road. And so
0: it really does make a difference. Absolutely. So let's talk about the reality right now that we see electric aviation. Um, obviously, you know, when you're thinking about, let's say, a, you know, a, a, a seven, a, you know, a Dreamliner, you know, just to give an example, huge plane, <laughs> we probably won't see anything like that electrified soon, right? It, it, this is primarily focused on those smaller, like you were saying, middle mile flights where there might be. You know, anywhere from how, how many passengers would you say um, this, this is like right now, right now? I
2: would say that, that right now with the batteries and or fuel cells that are existing today or will, it, will be in existence in the next three to five years, you're probably looking at electric aircraft from a commercial level, anywhere between five to 50 passengers. No wow. more than that. And flying up to about 500 miles. No more than that. Anyone who's thinking of doing something bigger, like you said, the Dreamliner, even an 8.320 or 7.37 size uh, and wants to do 500 miles or more, either doesn't understand the physics of flying uh, or is selling you something that doesn't exist. Those will happen one day, 30, 40, 50 years from now, but not anytime soon. And that's really because of the energy storage that doesn't exist at this point.
0: Right, because right now you guys are still using, you know, lithium ion batteries, I'm assuming, for these planes, and there's a significant weight, um, you know, to the, like, if if you think about it, right, you know, if you take your car battery out, it's a pretty heavy unit, and then you see, you know, a lot of these electric vehicles, they're, they're pretty heavy. Um, so how do you guys deal with the weight of the battery on these planes? Um, because I'm assuming it adds a considerable amount of, you know, weight to the, to the, to the, to the plane. Um, and I'm sure it limits how far or, you know, how many passengers you can actually load on the plane, correct?
2: You're exactly right. And so today's limitation is the energy source. So either batteries or fuel cells, which are also in development. And then in the batteries, that the chemistry of the batteries—is it lithium ion, lithium sulfur, etc.? As you mentioned correctly, today lithium ion is the only real approach uh, for current aircraft. I'm not talking about future development aircraft, the current aircraft. Right. And there, uh, the weight is a challenge. But it's really about what question are you asking? If you're looking at retrofit aircraft, meaning like we did, like Magnix did with Harbor Air on the e Beaver, or like we did with the e Caravan that we're doing now with city seaplanes, uh, then the challenge is. How many batteries can you fit in the existing aircraft because it was designed for a certain uh, level of operation? In yeah. that case, you just put the batteries where you can, and so your resulting range is much shorter. For example, a caravan today off the shelf, if you will, coming off the factory in Wichita, I believe they're made, mm-hmm. can do eight, nine hundred miles in range. You know, of course, with only one person on board, et cetera, but they can reach a max range of uh, nine hundred miles plus minus. But if you take a battery caravan, you're at about 100 miles. Why? Because you've now taken a bunch of really uh, energy-dense fuel and replaced it with less energy-dense batteries. So you can only do 100 miles in range. Now, here's the interesting part of that question or answer is, how many people fly in a caravan for 800 or 900 miles? In fact, how many people fly in a caravan 500 miles for a couple of hours? Probably not very many. There's no toilet in that plane. I don't know about you or your listeners, I can't go very far without having to go to the toilet (laughs) or at least stretch my legs a bit. And those caravans are not built for distance. And so the operators of caravans will fly 30 minutes, an hour, hour and a half. So you can do that with batteries today. That's on the retrofit model. Ah, If you look at the other side, which is newly designed aircraft, like the Aviation Alice, which is a brand new design of an aircraft, they went to the problem from the other side. They didn't say, the batteries are too heavy for my plane because the plane didn't exist. They said, if I want to fly 500 miles, how many batteries do I have to carry of today's batteries? And if that's how many batteries I have to carry with nine people plus two pilots, what type of plane do I build around it? So they actually tackled the the uh, challenge from you know, the ground up, uh, pun intended, by saying, if this is what I want to do, what does a plane have to look like? So the plane's a little bigger than what a caravan would be for the same nine passengers. It's much heavier than what the caravan will be, but it will do the 500 miles that a nine passenger plane will want to do. And it'll do so in comfort. It'll do so with zero emissions and very little noise. And so from that perspective, it's really about, first of all, is it a retrofit or a new design? And what are you trying to achieve?
0: Yes. And we'll talk about the Alice in just a second, but let me, let me just clarify to our audience that, you know, Magna X is not actually producing an electric airplane, correct? You guys are working with different manufacturers for the electric propulsion system?
2: That's right. We, If you think of it, if you take a car, uh, there's a company that builds a car and then there's a company that builds the engine for that car. Right. We are the engine company. Now, we call them electric propulsion systems because engines guzzle gas and create emissions. Yeah. So we like to use the cleaner electric propulsion uh, units. So we are the propulsion system company, and we provide our motors and propulsion systems to anyone who's building planes. Those those could be retrofitted companies uh, Mm -hmm. that take existing planes, new or old, and convert them to electric. It could be newly designed airplanes and companies that design things from scratch. We provide them the propulsion system. In addition, I'll also say we're also very much power agnostic. Some companies want to use batteries. Great, we'll take the electricity from those batteries. Some companies are looking at hydrogen fuel cells like this amazing company in California, Universal Hydrogen. Yes, they're, I was they're about taking, to ask you about that. Yeah, no, they're <laughs> phenomenal. They're taking a dash eight, a 40 passenger plane and turning it into electric. So we're gonna put our motors on the wings for the propulsion. And then they're going to have a hydrogen fuel cell providing the electricity. We're fine with that as well. In fact, I like the joke, but if you want to put a bunch of gerbils on a wheel turning really quickly to produce electricity, we'll, we'll take that electricity as well. <laughs> so as the propulsion company, we're agnostic to what the airplane looks like and how it gets its energy. But whatever it is, we'll create thrust for it. Does that yes. make sense?
0: Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And, and the one thing I was going to ask you, following up on your point about universal hydrogen, um, you know, I, I see that you're working with them on a hydrogen-powered uh, you know, version of this system. Based on what you guys have have worked on so far, what are some of the benefits of using hydrogen versus electricity? Um, you know, I don't know if you have any insights as well on how long it actually takes to charge. You know, let's say one of those retrofitted planes that you know you've already tested out there in the market, um, and any insights on on like charge time and, and what the advantages of using hydrogen might be over electricity?
2: Yes. Yeah, so, so just first of all, a uh, uh, clarification. It's not hydrogen or electricity. It's hydrogen or batteries. Both of them produce electricity.
3: That's the oh, thing right, that right, right. Yep. Uh,
2: to, to really to clarify, it's not like we're using hydrogen and putting it in the motor. The hydrogen fuel cell takes the hydrogen and through a chemical reaction turns that into electricity that goes into our motor. Ah, very yes. very d- different but similar to the battery that has its own chemical reaction and creates electricity. For our batteries, for our uh, motors. And so, from that perspective, it's either battery electric or hydrogen fuel cell electric. But both aircraft are electric. Both are now electric. They, exactly. Now, there are advantages to hydrogen when looking at larger aircraft. The challenge, as you said, with batteries correctly is right now they're very heavy. So, they can't really do anything for very large aircraft. And I say very large, it's all relative to these 40, 50 size, passenger size aircraft. So. Those are not going to be battery electric anytime soon. But hydrogen can work because hydrogen is much more energy dense, provides more energy per weight than batteries do. And so that's really good for a large aircraft. The challenge with hydrogen is they take a lot of space. That mm. gas has to be held somewhere. That's why hydrogen electric airplanes won't be anytime soon for the very small airplanes, like the five or 12 passenger airplanes, because ah. you have no room to put the gas. And so From that perspective, we actually believe that the electric aviation market will be best equipment for the best mission, meaning for the small planes and small routes, you'll see a battery electric plane. For the larger planes, for medium-sized routes, you're going to see a hydrogen fuel cell electric plane. And for the really large planes, like a 737, A330, et cetera, for ranges of 1,000 miles or more, you're still going to see the traditional jet engines perhaps fueled by liquid hydrogen or perhaps fueled by SAF, synthetic aviation fuel, but they're still going to be traditional uh, engines. And so you're going to see this split of best technology for best mission and not what it is today of a one-size-fits-all. And so the advantage of hydrogen and why Universal Hydrogen are using it is that for an aircraft of a size that they're doing, the Dash 8 300, which will carry 40 people, you simply can't do it with batteries. And if you want to do anything that's emission-free, then the only way to go is hydrogen fuel
0: cells. Right, right. And then you don't have to deal with the charge time, I'm assuming, of charging all those batteries that are actually on the plane, correct?
2: Well, you'd have to do one of two things. Either refuel or regas the airplane with hydrogen, or Mm. what universal hydrogen have developed is like canisters that are replaceable. So the plane will land, they'll take the empty canisters of uh, hydrogen out and put in new canisters in.
0: Thus, shortening the time to do what would be a charging. That's so fascinating <laughs> that, that that that's you know that they thought about that strategy is, is incredible. Um, definitely, I think you know the charge time is something I was going to ask you about with the battery electric um, you know airplanes that you guys have worked on. What's the what's the wh- how long would it take to charge? You know, let's say that plane you guys flew out on uh, in, in December twenty nineteen.
2: Yep. So so the eBeaver, for example, if you use a supercharger, similar to what you would find in any one of the car charging stations, yeah. you're looking at about a one-to-one ratio. You fly for 30 minutes, you charge for 30 minutes. You fly mm-hmm. for an hour, you charge for an hour. And so uh, it's not as fast as fuel, uh, because, again, fuel, the plane lands, you, you connect the, the pump in, and in 10, 20 minutes, you could be done. Uh, and so it's not as fast as fuel. but for the fact that you're now flying with much less noise, significantly less cost because electricity is, you know, uh, multiple folds cheaper than electri- than uh, uh, fuel. And the fact that it's zero emission after a 30-minute flight, having to wait 30 minutes to charge is not too bad because a lot of these planes are on the ground for 30 to 45 minutes anyway in between
0: right. flights. Right. That's and so true. From that
2: perspective, it's not terrible.
0: Yeah, now I'm actually really surprised that it's only a a one to one ratio. You would think that with something like an airplane, um, it would take a lot longer than that. So definitely, you know, there's been some good work there, um, kind of optimizing how those batteries are arranged. Um, one thing I was going to say is about the noise piece because I'm sure we're all familiar with using our noise canceling headphones in an airplane and you know trying to block out that noise. What kind of noise reduction would, do you see in real life in an electric airplane, do you still have any noise at all? Like, what, what, what is the noise pollution uh, footprint of an electric plane? Yeah,
2: that, that's really good insight. So so similar to a car, if you've ever driven an electric car, mm-hmm. the motor makes no noise whatsoever, right? You turn the car right. on, and there's just no noise. But when you're driving, you still hear the tires on the road. Yes. You still have wind noise, right? So there's still the noise from the environment. In the electric plane, there's one other aspect. Uh, The motor itself, again, makes no noise whatsoever, but the propeller, as it's turning and pushing air, pushing wind, Mm -hmm. it still creates quite a bit of noise. And so you're still going to have noise from electric planes, but we've now measured, we've been flying the E-Beaver now for over a year, uh, as you mentioned, starting in December of 2019 uh, and as late as last week. So as we fly them, we've been measuring the noise uh, that comes in and out of that aircraft and comparing it to a regular E-beaver. So the nice thing about this plane is, is that there's the equivalent uh, sister or brother, which is internal combustion-based. So we can compare the exact same flight from the exact same distance, et cetera, and measure the noise differences. And what we found now is that the electric version is plus minus 20 decibels less than the internal combustion engine for every phase of flight, sometimes even more than 20, but about an wow. average of 20. Now, what, what does that mean, 20 decibels? Because noise is not a linear uh, function, 20 Mm -hmm. decibels of noise less to the human ear is about 100 times less noise energy. 100 times. So for example, if you were to stand 300 feet away from an electric plane taking off, Mm -hmm. it would sound like someone having a conversation next to you, a regular conversation, (laughs) versus having a vacuum cleaner operate next to your ear which would be the regular one and so it's really significantly less noisy in fact if you look at the noise that the electric beaver makes compared to the regular and then you compare it to a lot of the airports around the country that have noise restrictions Mm -hmm. the regular beaver could not fly in and out of those airports while the electric one could so the beauty is not only is that for your passenger a big difference The impact for the communities is tremendous because now they can have air access, convenient air transportation at a lower cost in and out of their neighborhood airport, so to speak, but without having the noise pollution that comes out of the traditional aircraft. So that's really exciting uh, prospect of the electric aircraft.
0: That is one thing I was going to ask you about because I did see that your strategy is using regional airports, right? So it's going to be pretty critical to, you know, reducing noise and, and, and all that stuff. But why do you think larger air, airlines have really avoided using, you know, regional airports and, and what purpose do you think they're going to serve you and other companies are looking to really, you know, revolutionize, uh, you know, the future of mobility? Yeah. So, so I don't think it's that airlines
2: don't want to use regional airports. I think they would love to, they just can't make money at it. Mm. Uh, the, the airline business as is, is a low-margin business. Operating airplanes is really, really expensive. The majority of that spend, about 50% of a cost of flying for an hour, is uh, fuel and maintenance on the engines. That's about 50% of that cost. The rest is you know, the aircraft itself, the pilot, et cetera. But 50% is just fuel and maintenance. And so if you have these airplanes that are so expensive to buy and to operate, and now you want to say, Hey, now I'm going to take, I'm going to fly to some small airport, and now I need TSA and ground baggage handling and ground transportation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Suddenly it becomes so expensive that what the airlines figured out is that for all those costs, the bigger the airplane, the more money they make. And the manufacturers of the airplanes and engines found out the same thing. And so we've seen over time that airplanes at airlines have become bigger and bigger and bigger. Now the challenge is, in order to still make money on those, you still have to fill them about 70% of the time. Now, if you have a 100-passenger plane that you have to fly anywhere and fill 70% of the time, that means you need 70 people on it. So you can't go to a small, regional, uh, small or regional airport, let alone a rural airport. And so we've also seen in the United States and other places in the world, less and less airports getting air service. Either they never got it to begin with, or mm-hmm. airlines are pulling out because they have to fill those big planes. And so out of the over 10,000 airports across the United States, 5,000 of which are capable of actually providing public service, only about 600 are used by the airlines because those are the ones that they can fill those 100 passenger and above seats in and have all the infrastructure. But the 10,000 airports still exist. Imagine if you could say, I can offer you a small plane, 5, 9, 12, even 19 passengers, You don't need TSA infrastructure because 19 seats are below, you don't need it. You don't need baggage handling because people flying small airport to small airport will not go with a giant suitcase. They'll go with their carry-on. You don't need special gates because these are smaller planes. You can go on and off stairs. So imagine, and then you tell the public, instead of driving for an hour to the giant airport, finding parking, et cetera, why don't you drive 15 minutes, which is about the average any individual in the U.S. lives from an airport drive 15 minutes, get to the airport. Don't get there an hour ahead of time because there's a thousand other people. Get there 15 minutes ahead of time because there's only 20 other people. You suddenly change the entire door-to-door experience of flying and flying becomes like taking your car or taking a bus or taking a train as opposed to what it is today, which is an experience, an expensive, cumbersome, very not convenient experience. And so by changing that and going to the small airports, that already exists in the U.S., in Europe, all over the place, you can really change transportation by making aviation a common person's commonplace transportation method as opposed to something that's for a small percentage of the population. Equality, equity, access suddenly become really easy.
0: Yeah, so I I find it fascinating that overnight, if this technology pans out, You'll be able to see a fifty percent cost reduction, correct? In, in how much it would cost to actually operate an airplane, and in turn, you know, everyone would be able to to travel at a, at, a, at you know a more affordable price. Um, but what does it normally cost to, to retrofit, let's say, one of those you know small small airplanes that you guys are are working with right now um, to an electric propulsion system?
2: Yeah, so so, so that's, that's a good question. Yes, we, we are seeing anywhere between forty to eighty percent lower cost per hour, and it's a, a wide range of forty to eighty percent lower because it depends what your starting point is, right depending on the type of aircraft, how you fly, et cetera. Uh, but anywhere between forty to eighty closer to the forty uh, mm-hmm. than the, than the eighty, meaning you're at forty percent of the cost versus eighty percent of cost. so significant significant cost savings. By the way, anecdotally, to give you an example, uh, when we flew the caravan. Uh, when you fly a regular caravan for about an hour and a half, we were spending about four hundred and twenty plus dollars for a fuel for that one and a half hour flight mm-hmm. versus twenty-four dollars in electricity for that same one and a half what? hour wow. flight. We did those comparisons. <laughs> so you're talking yeah, twenty-four versus over four hundred and twenty. Huge, huge cost savings. And that's just the fuel, let alone the maintenance which hardly exists on an electric motor versus on the internal combustion one. But now translate that into operations, then yes, you're really looking at significant cost savings. Now, the beauty of you're asking about the cost of the retrofit. So that would depend on what airplane, do you know how to do it yourself or do you have to hire someone to do it, et cetera. But from what we've seen so far by doing these quite a few times, is it costs about what it would cost you to do a full overhaul on an engine That's an internal combustion engine. So if you have to now buy a brand new engine or do a full overhaul it, including the time to do the work and the downtime of the aircraft, et cetera, you could use that period to instead retrofit to electric. Then the cost savings that come afterwards are pure gravy on top of it.
0: Mm, I see. I see. And by the way, if you send, if you hear a little bit of a delay, or it, I think we're we're on a little bit of a delay uh, through the platform right now. So please apologize. I apologize for that. Um. But uh. Wh- so one thing I was going to ask you is, I think you briefly mentioned it is the aviation Alice. You guys are working closely with. I'm assuming a company called Aviation. And they're producing this, uh, you know, plane that you had previously mentioned that I think has about 19 seats. Do you know if that's still on track to fly this year and if there's been any orders on it or, and what, you know, this aircraft w- would cost?
2: Yeah, so, so what, what I can say, that, the EBH and ei is a company, uh, originally started up in Israel. Uh, they're now headquartered out of Arlington, Washington. So they're about 30 minutes north of us. We're in Everett uh, and they're in Arlington, Washington. Uh, it's a nine, the Alice is a nine passenger all electric aircraft. Uh, very cool uh, piece of equipment, all composite, fly by wire, very comfortable interior. They did a phenomenal job in designing that aircraft. Uh, and so they're on track uh, to fly this year uh, with their first aircraft or, or their first, I'll call it, flight test bed. Uh, they'll be flying uh, later this year. We actually just delivered our first propulsion system to them uh, a few weeks ago. Very exciting times.
0: It's going to be incredible. Uh, so we'll wrap things up here, um, Roy. This has been incredible, super informative. Um, now I'm super excited for the future of, of electric aviation. Um, but uh, where can people learn more about uh, learn more about MagniX and uh, what you guys are doing for the aviation industry?
2: Yeah, so they can go and look online at our website at MagniX.Aero, magni xa uh, or they can follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, uh, where we usually share kind of real-time the various things that are happening. Uh, but in general, I mean, this is an exciting time uh, that I don't think aviation has seen since the 30s and 40s, when people like Howard Hughes and Bill Boeing and McDonald were working on aircraft. We're really creating a revolution in aviation in, a, in allowing affordability, access, equity, like never before, and doing it in a way that's really good for not only the environment, by the way, but, but health as well. Noise, for example, from aircraft. There was a study, I believe it was Harvard, that did a study that noise from aircraft is a significant contributor to cardiovascular disease, to heart disease, which is amazing. I would have never thought of that connection. But Harvard found ah. that connection in the, in, the, in the neighborhoods, in and around airports. And of course, as we know, the number one killer in the United States of people is heart disease. And so imagine now being able to produce a much lower noise aircraft, forget the environmental pollution, but just the noise pollution that now significant contributes Mm -hmm. to health. And so this is such an exciting time to be able to produce an aircraft.
0: Yeah. And it's funny enough, when we were doing this podcast, I had like five uh, airplanes pass by uh, my house because I live pretty close to an airport. And uh, it had me thinking it would be really nice to not have to deal with that noise uh, anymore. Uh, but Roy, it's been a pleasure. Please come back with us one day. I, I want to hear how your company evolves and keeps growing because um, this is an absolutely incredible project. And, you know, uh, in the show notes of this podcast, we'll have a link to MagniX's website. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Inside Transportation Podcast. We'll see you all next week. Take
2: care.